following program is produced by the Align in the Sound team. If you like what you hear, please stick around at the end of the show. To find out more, contact us and contribute towards a positive future. Chris Reedy, Towards the Next Economic Narrative for Australia. Welcome, everyone. Um, so I'm Chris Reedy. I'm a Professor of Sustainability Transformations at the Institute for Sustainable Futures at University of Technology, Sydney. And yes, about, um, it was a little over a year ago, I think, I did a webinar for Nina that um, Michelle invited me to do about narratives. And I've been working on narratives for, I guess, three or four years now. It's been a big focus in my research and, um, and I take a very action research approach. Our institute is has a mission to create change towards sustainable futures. So we're out there trying to make the world a better place rather than just study it. And I've been working with a, an international network called the SDG Transformations Forum um, since 2017. And one of the focuses of that forum is on transforming narratives alongside many other, other issues that are problematic like governance systems and finance systems and so on. And so I've been doing a lot of research around how do narratives change? What are the narratives that are dominant at the moment? Um, what are some other possible, I'm just, uh, the reason I'm stumbling there is because I'm letting a couple of people in by the waiting room, so apologies. Um, so what, what are the dominant narratives? What, how do narratives change and transform? And what might be the shape of the, the next narrative that is emerging to hopefully replace neoliberal capitalism. So neoliberal capitalism is the label that I give to the, the dominant economic narrative at the moment. And you can see some of what um, that narrative contains. It's about achieving endless growth in GDP, even though that's impossible. It's a very individualistic narrative. It um, stresses competition with each other rather than collaboration or cooperation. It's about freedom and, and tends to express that in terms of free markets and free trade. It's about small government, government getting out of the way so that markets can do their thing. Uh, it's about private ownership of the, um, well, trying to enclose the commons and, and own it privately. Uh, it stresses separation from each other and from nature. And as a result of that, it sees nature as a commodity, something that um, we can exploit to our heart's content. And what we end up with as a result of that narrative of neoliberal capitalism is destruction of nature, the kind of things that we've seen with climate change, the, the bushfires, um, bleaching of coral reefs, all the impacts that we're very aware of but also um, creating social injustice that's starting to simmer into conflict. And the image on the bottom left is from the um, protests in uh, Santiago, Chile last year, which I was caught up in um, because the Transformations 2019 conference was, was there and uh, the protests kicked off just as that conference was finishing. So we had a very real experience of what transformation can look like in practice and that it's often messy and violent and problematic. Um, but the tensions that lead to this kind of protest have been created by the, the um, social injustice that neoliberal capitalism creates. 
And of course, a, a loss of meaning, a, a sense that, um, sorry, I was just letting somebody else into the <laughs> meeting room and lost my train of thought again. Um, but the, the bottom right um, image is this sense that even though we're growing and growing and growing as an economy, we're not getting happier. We're not finding more meaning in life. We're not getting genuine human well-being from this narrative. Um, and the thing to remember is that neoliberal capitalism is only about as old as the average life expectancy of a human right now. It, it started, um, the ideas that led to neoliberal capitalism came together in Switzerland in 1947 at the first meeting of the Mont Pelerin Society. Some of the members photographed there during that meeting on a little excursion. Uh, a bunch of scholars, mainly, mainly economists, that really embarked on the strategy to make neoliberalism dominant. And they very successfully worked to get these ideas into business schools and into government and into public discourse. And that narrative um, has become dominant. It was dominant by the 1980s, but the fact that they were able to engage in this transformation of a narrative shows us firstly that dominant narratives can transform. Um, secondly, humans can play an active role in that transformation if we take some strategic collective action in the direction of a narrative that we desire. Narratives can transform pretty quickly. It was only sort of 30 years from when those ideas were first um, discussed around the table in Switzerland that they were dominant across the um, economies of the, around the world. Um, and that you know, critiquing existing narratives like neoliberalism is, is really important, but also important is laying out an alternative. And so that leads me to ask questions about what's emerging as the next economic narrative and how can we act collectively to make sure that that next narrative has positive outcomes for people and planet. I'm just gonna do one quick pause to make sure I've let everyone in who wants to be here. Looks like I have, all right. So two things that I've done in um, the last year or so to try and get a sense of a response to that question about what might be the content of a next economic narrative is one's a more sort of academic approach, well, both are a bit academic, but the first one uh, was a review of emerging narratives, particularly in the scholarly literature. While it was looking at the scholarly literature, you can see the kind of um, narrative organisations that are expressing narratives that are covered in that. So looked at things like Donut Economics from Kate Raworth, looked at what um, the Sustainable Development Goals are saying, what we're hearing in the transformations community that's grown out of a series of transformation conferences. We looked at degrowth, um, What's the, the Wellbeing Economy Alliance's narrative? What's the Earth Charter's narrative? Um, what is transmodernism, which is a kind of, is, is a bit more of an academic idea, but it's this more sort of integrative narrative that tries to bring um, different narratives together. Um, the sort of funky sci-fi looking image is representing solar punk. So I looked at some of the literary uh, narratives that are emerging. And down on the bottom right is um, Buen Vivir, the, um, the Latin American idea of good living that's um, emerged as well. So those are just some of the narratives that I looked at. And just to give a sense of a couple of those, 
Um, donut economics, I'm sure everyone's very familiar now with the, the general idea of that, but what they've started doing, what Kate Raworth and others have been doing with that is bringing it down to a city scale and starting to think about what does that look like at a city scale. And, and so in doing that, they've said, well, we need to think about the, the social and the ecological um, aspects of the donut, um, which is the sort of outer boundary and the, the inner foundation, but also think about this globally and locally. And that leads to a series of questions and around these, these four quadrants. And so some of the things that you can see there, um, some of the kind of things that are coming out in the narrative, this, this first question about what, um, about local, the local and the social, what would it mean for the people of Amsterdam to thrive? So this idea of thriving is um, pretty common across the narratives I looked at. Uh, what would it mean for Amsterdam to thrive within its natural habitat? So this idea of people in nature rather than people separated from nature. What would it mean for Amsterdam to respect the health of the whole planet? Ideas of respect and dignity uh, were pretty common across the narratives as well. And ideas of planetary health, um, that we need to look after the health of the whole planet and that supports our own health. And then finally, what would it mean for Amsterdam to respect the well-being of people worldwide, worldwide? And this idea of well-being um, for all, all around the world, is another really common aspect in these emerging narratives. Um, another one is the, the Wellbeing Economy Alliance and uh, was involved in some work last year that um, we all did to think about their messaging and what were the key elements of their narrative that they wanted to promote. And these were the, it was a very quick and dirty piece of work, I have to say, and I don't know if they um, entirely work, but the ideas um, are, are things that are generally popping up a lot across um, other narratives as well. So dignity, everyone having enough to live in comfort, safety and happiness, a restored and safe natural world for all life, sense of belonging, institutions that serve the common good, fairness, justice, um, reducing gap between rich and poor, and participation, which is um, interesting in light of the conversation this morning about democracy and um, what democracy actually means or should mean um, and participation rather than voting perhaps being and, and representation perhaps being what we should be aiming for in the next economic narrative. So I looked at all these different narratives and looked for the kind of elements that were coming up as common across all of them. And before I get into that, I wanna share this other piece of work which contributes to this as well, which was we did a story and uh, a story. We did a survey about stories. Um, my co-author for this was Sandra Waddick at Boston College. And we put together a survey on asking people about new stories for a sustainable future. What we asked them was these, these questions. What do you think are the most important ideas that should be part of the stories that guide humanity into the future? What, what would be the characters in these stories? Can you, can you come up with a story yourself that includes those ideas and characters? It was a pretty big ask for someone to do in a survey is to actually write a story, but we had a lot of people um, have a go at that and uh, some of them in quite a bit of detail. What do you think are the best ways to share this story so that lots of people could be influenced and a few demographic details just to see if there were any variations in the stories that people are telling based on those categories. 
And we send it out to people involved in the SDG Transformations Forum that I talked about earlier, uh, particularly the Transforming Narratives Network under that forum. We sent it out through WEALS lists, uh, promoted it at the Transformations 2019 conference and through some blog posts and social networks and so on. Sent it around my institute, um, various of, of Sandra's um, networks that are particularly in sort of management and business circles, uh, a values-based schools network in the UK, and then a bit of snowballing went on as well. We asked people to share it more broadly. And adding that uh, material to the review that I did, the kind of concepts that are coming out as common across what people told us in the survey and what people are saying in, in a lot of those emerging narrative initiatives that I listed out on the earlier slide is these kind of ideas that a different way firstly of looking at the world. So if um, neoliberal capitalism is very much about, about hierarchies and about um, separation, uh, the next narrative proposals are about thinking of the world as, as, as complex nested systems, systems within systems like Russian dolls. Um, thinking of the world as networks that we're connected to each other, that we're part of a web of life, that we're, um, you pull a thread and it's connected to everything else. And the idea of cycles, that uh, thinking of things like the circular economy, the cycles that exist in nature. Um, so more circular than linear uh, ideas emerging in these narratives. So that's a fundamentally different way of looking at the world to what we see in neoliberal capitalism. And it uh, leads to a whole bunch of different ideas about our relationship to each other and our relationship to the planet. So firstly, in terms of the relationships with people and planet, really stressing human connectedness rather than the competition that is so integral to neoliberal capitalism. Uh, what, you know, arguing that we're all, we're all in this together, that it's about cooperation and being compassionate for each other, uh, that we are part of a commons, um, if you like. And then a very different relationship, not just with each other, but with the planet, a relationship that's sustainable at the very least. But most of these next economic narratives or proposals for such narratives are not saying that sustainability is the goal necessarily. It's, it's kind of a minimum standard, if you like. And uh, we need to go further because sustainability just means continuing to exist. And yes, of course, we want that, but it's not that exciting and a lot of damage has been done. And so continuing to exist in the way that the world is now is not enough. We need to regenerate, we need to restore. And so the relationship with the planet needs to be a regenerative and restorative one for quite some time to, to get back to um, the diversity of nature that we might aspire to. And of course, that's going to require a harmonious relationship with nature where we don't see nature as just a resource to exploit something separate from us, but something that we're part of, connected to, feel excited about, 
um, enjoy being involved with. So there's a lot in these narratives about what next economies might be aiming to deliver. And I'm sure in this group that none of this will be unfamiliar, but uh, instead of the goals of growing the economy, growing GDP, we're looking for an economy that delivers genuine human well-being and thriving. Um, that, sorry, another, letting another person in. Um, it's an economy that delivers social justice, that importantly delivers plurality. So it's not about any one way. And there's um, really interesting narratives coming out of, particularly out of Latin America, uh, that are heavily critical of our Western narratives and, and the, what they describe as the one world world that wants to make everything the same. And that it's really important that we maintain plurality, plurality of the way that people see the world, the way that they understand the world, the way that they live in the world. And the new economy needs to deliver dignity and respect for all. Then there's a lot less agreement there's quite a bit of agreement on you know, those aspects about the vision, if you like, of where we wanna to get to. There's a lot less agreement on how to get there, but what you do see very commonly is the four things down the bottom, that some form of participatory practices that we the, we, the citizens need to be involved in the process of transformation towards a next economy, that it needs to be a commoning process um, not led by governments, because we don't have a lot of faith in that happening. Um, not led by business, but led by civil society working together. That getting there is going to need humans to develop a lot more wisdom and awareness than we have at the moment. And so that points towards human development, capacity building, working so that people can grow their potential. And a lot of agreement also that artistic and creative practice needs to be part of this transformation, that um, art will be both a driver and a reflection of the kind of narratives that emerge, whether it's storytelling, it's visual arts, um, but just the you know, thinking of the human well-being and thriving, that everybody has an opportunity to engage in creativity and to make that part of their way of life. So what I'm starting to think about now and what I would really like the um, people to join me with in the, the Nina Narratives Hub is um, what might an Australian narrative look like that encompasses these elements? And of course it has to, and we heard a lot about this in the first session this morning, it must first and foremost be built on the stories of the Aboriginal people that have, during their long stewardship of, of this land, generated an understanding of how to live in harmony with this place. And, and Mary Graham's discussion this morning of autonomy, balance, law and place. I mean, those are things that we can think about. How, how do we make that part of our next economic narrative? It must, I think, connect us also with our unique place, our glorious Australian landscapes is represented on the, the top right there. Um, but it's also not, I'm not advocating something that's backward looking. It needs to look forward uh, 
inspire, imagine ways that regenerative technologies can be integrated into our daily lives and cities. Hence the kind of sci-fi little image on the bottom left there. But you can see nature is really integrated into that image as well. And it's got to be a narrative that always stresses that we're entangled, we're in this together, we're engaging in a process of commoning. So those are some initial ideas. I, I really want to explore these more in the um, Nina Narratives Hub and hope that some of you might be interested in joining us in that hub. I'll have an update about that on uh, Sunday. Um, so please feel free to join us in that. Louise Tarrant, Unmasking Untold Stories. I really appreciate the opportunity to share a discussion with everyone today. And, and I just love that I follow Chris because he, <laughs> he talked about just about everything that I would want to talk about. Um, but uh, so there's a lot of synergy between what's already been discussed. And what I'm going to do today is I'm going to do a ridiculous race through a lot of big things, um, more just to give a feel of um, uh, some issues. And I guess what when I approached this, I was thinking of it through the prism of what I think are, are often untold stories. Um, and I'll come back a bit more to what I mean by that. So, but just for people that don't know, um, I'm associated with an organisation called Australia Remade. And what we're trying to do is very much along the lines of what Chris was um, talking about, promote a vision for the country. Um, but alongside the vision, trying to also do systems change um, analysis to see how you're actually going to make change the drivers that actually realize that vision. Um, so, and what we have learned, I think, through a process of just um, uh, learning, we certainly didn't set out with this expectation, is that to remake, you first need to unravel. And so we spend quite a lot of time trying to just understand. Um, and so in a way, what we're drawn to is the stories um, of what's unknown or ill-defined, unspoken, unnoticed, misunderstood, untold. What is it that um, sits in the background that actually creates the environment in which we're operating, often holds us here and prevents us from moving to um, the vision that we would like to see realised? Um, and so we talk a lot about transformation and remaking, but um, we've appreciated that without an analysis around system change, that's um, uh, very difficult to um, really sort of realise. And so um, we have this lovely um, uh, quote from um, Millie, who's actually from Australia Made and sitting on this call today and talking later this afternoon. Um, about system change because we've actually struggled with what the hell a system is <laughs> or systems. Um, and so we talk about these strangely invisible things that seem impenetrable and inevitable, but actually they're, they're made by people and therefore can be changed. So it's really important that we don't um, get captured by the mystique or seemingly naturalness of um, these things. So actually unravelling um, uh, is important to um, creating change. Uh, and I just, I, I, I want to use this quote, it actually has a much bigger meaning, but just for the purpose of today. Um, in the cause of silence, each of us draws the face of our own fear, fear of contempt, censure, judgment. Um, there are so many silences to be broken. And I, and I put this here because one of the 
issues that we talk a lot about at Australian Made when we're thinking about unravelling is, is the fact that none of us are experts. We don't work uh, in academia, we don't have um, scores of researchers, we're, we're just practitioners coming at this to try and unravel things. And so we come at it with a fair level of vulnerability um, and uh, to exposure, uh, to critique, um, to challenge, um, and indeed to censure. So what we're trying to do is create an open space and be more forgiving of each other when we're trying to grapple with these really big issues and not feel like we've got to know it all or we don't have to know all the latest theories or be experts, but try to, try to unravel in ways that build community um, uh, ownership around um, analysis. So I just want to quickly touch on um, three stories or as more as examples about how untold stories really shape our world and shape or inhibit our capacity to change that world. And the first is, you know, Chris has particularly touched on, and that is the political movement that dared not speak its own name. And I think um, there's a lot can be said about neoliberalism um, or neoliberal capitalism as Chris referred to it. I think for me, one of the most interesting little side stories is the fact that for many, many years, um, the proponents of those set of um, theories, ideology, ideas, refused to actually name it um, or, or put it out there as, as a cohesive set of um, uh, ideas. Um, even the notion of the Mount Pelerin Society was quite deliberately obscure, so it didn't um, do anything but obfuscate. And part of that was, um, there's a whole range of reasons as to why, but one in particular, I think, was the very real intention to try and make these philosophies and these, these sort of um, ideas seem as if they're just entirely natural and not contrived and not, not part of any conspiracy, not part of any construct. Um, and so in that sense, it was very clever. And there's just a little graph, there's various versions of this that are interesting, but you look at this and it's from 1935 um, to um, more recent times. And you'll see that although neoliberalism really started to gain some, or its ideas started to gain some currency in the 70s and particularly the 80s and 90s, you see that it was very little reference to it as a notion um, until much more recently. And now the debate that's interesting that is being had is whether the word is, is overused, overextended, whatever. And so there's a whole other debate about it, but, but interesting that they were able to just avoid naming um, the issue. And so I think that is a really powerful story of not telling. And clearly associated with um, neoliberalism, there's a whole lot of what would be called, um, uh, uh, sorry, I've just got a, I've lost someone. Okay, um, essentially double truths, and I won't go into all of these, I think we know them all by now, but um, you know, Tina, there is no alternative. That was a very powerful um, story that was told um, and basically talk about take away your agency or capacity to um, resist or change or fight for something better or different. Um, trickle down, we know about, um, uh, freedom, deregulation, the, the misnomer of both of those, freedom for who and what, freedom for money and capital, not for people, and uh, uh, deregulation, which again was a misnomer, choice, free market. So all of these had a particular story in the public arena, but actually had a whole other story behind them that took a long time to come out. Um, so 
as I say, I'm just going to race through these, but more just to give a taste of um, what I guess I'm calling sort of the untold stories that are critical to expose if we're going to create change. The second is a little piece of work that we did a while ago. Um, and I, this is about um, a statement from Trump. This was about their um, so-called Tax and Jobs um, Act in um, 2017 that delivered massive tax cuts, particularly to corporate America. Um, and I think that um, uh, what, what we did there was we, we basically did what um, Chris was talking about. We picked a thread and just unraveled and looked where it took us. And so we started by a little um, pro project of inquiry around this notion of buybacks. I'd never heard of buybacks. I just saw a story in a paper where um, uh, Frydenberg was berating companies for being lazy and buying back their shares with excess funds as opposed to investing it in new capital, you know, et cetera. Um, and I thought, oh, it's unusual for a, um, a Liberal Prime Minister to um, have a go at um, uh, corporations. So what's the story? And I didn't, I must admit, I didn't really know much about buybacks. So, and what became clear was that um, um, a whole story unraveled. So buybacks are essentially when um, companies have, um, can use their earnings um, to essentially buy back their own company's shares. And in so doing, it actually artificially inflates the share price because the volume is restricted. They've not actually added any value to the corporation other than scarcity of the shares. And so the share price goes up. Um, there's a, a one-off windfall to um, shareholders. Um, but what it means is that essentially those corporations are being denuded of funds. They, they've got less capacity to invest in people, product, innovation, et cetera. Um, and, and what we saw was that the tax cuts basically, um, so buybacks were the siphon essentially in the US. Tax cuts came into the corporation and then went, um, so out of the public purse into the corporation and through the buyback schemes and dividends, but particularly buybacks, um, went into shareholder pockets. Um, and so we just, it's, it was the great devouring of the public purse into um, not just private pockets, but 20%, um, uh, the top 20% of US um, income uh, earners uh, hold something like 80% oh, of the shares. So it was a direct wealth transfer from public to um, uh, the, the elite in terms of the private. And part of thinking about buybacks was, well, what's the rationale for this beyond just, you know, greed and wealth transfer? And there's a sort of a logic in um, uh, economic principle about agency theory and about, um, you know, trust the CEO to really have the interests at heart unless you tie their success to the success of the corporation. So, so you see this explosion over the last few um, decades of CEO pay being aligned to um, uh, return on, on, on the share price. And so you see them, um, uh, you know, now most CEO pay packets are at least 50% or more uh, in shares um, and various related bonuses and payments. So, so they, um, so the drive for this um, buyback was partly by the aggressive investors like hedge funds and that that wanted quick returns and in and out investors as opposed to long-term 
um, investors looking for um, quality investments, um, but also the CEO um, remuneration um, push. And what you see is this massive um, uh, wealth um, or income increase for um, CEOs. And that's where you start to see the big income divide, um, particularly in the US. Um, well, reflected worldwide, but exacerbated there. Um, and part of that was driven by this, um, another uh, sort of hidden story, if you like. Um, some of you may know all of this, but I guess it was in the unravelling that we were constantly shocked at our naivety at not thinking about some of these things. But this notion that shareholder primacy um, uh, was one of the key drivers and that this fact, this notion that, um, you know, Friedman had that there's only one social responsive business and it's to increase its profits and to return those to shareholders. And um, so it's entirely um, around a shareholder perspective, not a stakeholder perspective. Um, and, you know, um, Lasnik talks about um, maximisation of shareholder value basically is a predatory value extraction as opposed to a value um, uh, adding activity and essentially just transfers wealth. Um, and the thing about shareholder primacy is that actually the laws in most, in, you know, US and here essentially are about um, uh, corporation or, you know, um, being responsible to corporations, not to the shareholder. Um, so it's a, actually, it's a myth that's been built up, not based in specific law. Um, and in fact, you're now seeing some shifts in this um, in the US. But again, it was just the great con that the shareholder was the only um, beneficiary um, and should therefore get all the gain, as opposed to stakeholders, particularly workers who got totally dudded in this period. Um, and so also what we found is that the, those companies with the biggest buybacks actually performed least well, they were the least efficient, they did the least investment, they had the oldest um, capital um, stock, etc. So, um, uh, you know, it, it was basically um, overall, you know, starting with this little story about buybacks unravelling this whole um, litany of sins sort of started to unpack um, what was happening in the economy that, that was helping to explain the big shifts in income and wealth um, polarisation. Um, and just, you know, the result was, that, you know, one, that um, the richest did much better, um, but also what we saw, I think, in this so-called tax and jobs package, um, I think something like 60% or more of the benefit went to shareholders, 8% went to workers. Um, and so when, you know, this, these stories are really important to understand so that when in Australia we've had the debate in the last few years about reducing corporate taxes because that will lead to greater investment and, you know, um, better productivity and, you know, it's just, it's just not borne out by the experience of the US that basically just saw money totally translate into individual wealthy shareholder pockets. Um, so the third story um, is, and I'm sorry, none of these are particularly cheery stories. Um, the third story um, is some work we've been doing more recently to try and as the notion of neoliberalism um, is useful, but it, it doesn't entirely give us a lot of detail. And so we've been trying to unpack that and sort of where that system is morphing to because it's in transition, we believe. And so trying to understand what are the sort of um, the weak points, the new points, the boundaries. 
Um, and so what are the new values and different types of drivers that um, we need to understand? And, you know, we can't, as Naomi Klein insists on, on us, you know, we just can't say no. Um, we can't just look at the manifestations of problems. We can't just operate in silos and isolate um, uh, the issue of inequality from climate, from um, racism, from whatever the um, issue, there, there's a the connection. So how do, where does that come and how does it operate? Um, and we can't just rest with a vision. So, you know, again, and this reflects some of the work on previous slides of Chris's, you know, we started to unpack what are some of the problematic drivers um, from that neoliberal sort of period. And so it is about denuding the state. It's about delegitimising anything public. It's about deregulating markets, but re-regulating -re workers and um, other um, uh, public sort of spheres of potential um, agency. Um, uh, it's about, um, uh, it's about, oh, sorry, I'm not sure I demonopolize it. And it's about um, decollectivizing people. So, um, and it's actually about, um, ironically, it's about so-called freeing up the market, but actually um, leading towards quite strong oligopolistic, oligopolistic um, uh, outcomes. Um, and again, I think it's worth saying, this is the story we don't often talk about. And so again, it's great hearing Chris's um, work and what others are doing. But the real hidden story in all of this is we often talk about the machinery of difference between what is or what's problematic and what we'd like, but actually central to these competing stories are the values that um, drive us. And we don't talk enough, particularly on our side of politics, about those values and what's what's the difference there um, about competition versus cooperation, well-being, um, not economic growth as, as our key progress measure, power shared, not concentrated, collective over individualism, sharing and respect for nature, not exploitation. So some of the things that have already been um, spoken of previously. And so in that work, we came up with um, uh, trying to think about how do we respond then? How do we start to think about when people say, oh, well, what we need is a UBI or what when people say we need um, to control political funding, um, how do we how do we analyze those initiatives in in the sort of framework of response? And are these things sufficient? Are they are they going to um, give us a real um, sense of um, uh, of you know going to the root causes? or are they always going to be playing catch up by dealing with manifestations of problems? And so we started to identify um, that there are actually um, five Ds that we've talked about. We want to demarketize, so we want to re-promote um, public good and areas of life in the environment, the world that we don't want to be um, determined by market value. So how do we carve that out, identify, support and protect and, in, and enhance, decarbonise obviously, and, and the sort of the broader um, notions around sustainability plus, as Chris mentioned. We want to democratise and for us democratise is very much about participation. Um, decolonise and demonopolise, it's in the right place now. Um, how do, you can't have 
democracy, you can't have, um, you can't attack inequality while ever you have polarisation uh, and concentration of wealth and power. And so how do you start to um, uh, unpack those things? So, so it is really all about trying to learn how to um, unravel because once you've got those sorts of areas that you've identified, you can then start to think about strategies, policies, um, discussions that flow to say, well, what does demonopolise mean in the Australian context when we don't really have that sort of conversation going on, and particularly when the whole antitrust type um, debate got, you know, hijacked, and it's a whole other story. And Tim Wu's got some great stories about that. But you know, um, we lost that debate over the last fifty years. How do you restart it or rethink it? Or so. Um, the unravelling will give us elements of a new agenda to start thinking about. Um, and just to find to to finish, I've got uh, two seconds. Uh, I just uh, I went back to um, uh, a book called um, It's Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States. Um, and I'll just stop that so you're not looking at the screen. Um, because I actually just, and I thought there was a lovely quote, he talks about the history of any country presented as the history of a family conceals fierce conflicts of interest, sometimes exploding, most often repressed between conquerors and conquered masters and slaves, capitalists and workers, dominators and dominated in race and sex. And in such a world of conflict, a world of victims and executioners, it is the job of thinking people, as Albert Camus suggested, not to be on the side of the executioners. And so a bit of a dramatic finish, but I just thought that um, in a way, um, you know, often the story and particularly the story of neoliberalism has been the story of the victors, those that have done the best, those that have controlled the power um, and the wealth. And so the untold stories and the unravelling is really critical if we're to actually um, uh, not be silent in the face of the executioner. Simon Kerr, the practice of distilling new musical stories for the new economy. I want to start by acknowledging that I'm on the land of the Wiradjuri people in Melbourne, uh, of the Kulin Nation, and I do pay my respects to their elders. Uh, th this has been a fascinating session, and I'm very interested in the intellectual uh, dimensions of thinking through these stories. But today, uh, my focus is going to be on how my role as a story, musical storyteller has evolved over the last few years. Uh, and I'm going to play some music for you, uh, not live, but I'm going to, so if you haven't got good gamer headphones, it might not sound as good as it would walk through my headphones. So I'm going to have a really good time. So uh, I wish you luck. <laughs> but just as a, as a brief uh, background for those who aren't familiar with what I do, I, I do a bunch of things, but one of them particularly is this project called Music for a Warming World, which is a multimedia as you can sort of get indicated there, uh, music uh, show that takes people on uh, a journey through uh, the climate and ecological crisis. So it's sort of an emotional immersion in some of the science and the scholarship and uh, our responses to that. Uh, I, that's a, happens to be a solo gig, but normally I have a band and we make a lot of noise and have fun. I'm gonna start with the video. Uh, I don't know if any of you have seen this, and if you don't like this band, well, just bear with me for a minute.
Okay, to give the abrupt uh, stop, I generally like to fade the sound out. Um, is obviously this is U2. Uh, you may not recognize the concert. They're playing at the Super Bowl in Louisiana uh, in 2002, February. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of symbolism in this. Now, regardless of your perspective on the United States, uh, that this was about four months after 9-11. People were still not flying anywhere. Uh, they weren't going to big events. They were frightened of everything that was about to take place. And the Super Bowl is one of the biggest events on the US sort of cultural sporting calendar. Uh, Janet Jackson was supposed to perform that show, but she pulled out. Uh, she was worried her music wasn't appropriate. However, U2 came in, stole the show, and many critics rate it as the best Super Bowl show ever. But I want to read uh, some words that Bono said uh, after the show. He said, um, we play the song where the streets have no name. We play the song wherever we need God to walk through the room. It means stepping outside yourself, imagining the possibilities. It's asking people if you want to go on this journey together. It's that place, that place of soul, that place of imagination, the place where the streets have no name, that other place. Uh, the whole show is quite, actually quite powerful. I remember the first time I watched it, I was pretty well overcome, but I was struck by the power of symbols and stories. Now, nothing that we do is anywhere near the scale, but I wanted to remind us of the power of music to convey stories and to convey, uh, if you like, narratives. Oops, Daisy, we on again. We need some big stories and some big symbols, particularly in face of the climate challenge ahead of us. And I know Nina is working to give birth to some of these new stories, and that's what we've just been hearing today. Um, underneath these big stories are lots of untangling, unraveling of stories, understanding how things work. And it's a lot of sociological theory about how stories and discourses shape the way we see the world. Um, I used to write about a lot of stuff. I've written a zombie trilogy. I've written a slot. My most watched video is a, is a, is a ha, perchance happens to be about slot car racing, believe it or not, on YouTube. Go figure. Uh, vampire love affairs. Uh, but recently, I've come to realize we have no time for mucking around. So I have really changed my approach to, to songwriting. And I've made a conscious attempt to think about the new stories we need to contribute to this narrative shift at a practical level as well as a level of metaphor. So I've got my fourth album about to come out and in that album I've been working very much around the sort of things very much uh, as Chris and Louise have been talking about today, particularly some of the stuff Chris has been talking about, uh, that be ideas I've been grappling with. So I, I'm not going to spend any time on this because we are uh, very familiar with these things, but these are the ideas that I've been as a songwriter, been grappling with this idea of uh, not being atomized individuals, but the whole story of social cooperation is an important story that we need to be singing and, and speaking and writing and, and drawing about. Uh, the idea of the shared commonwealth. Uh, obviously, we've idolized democracy. We've heard a lot about that. I won't go into that much more. Justice, of course, for everyone. Uh, 
particularly recognizing the prior claims and rights of indigenous people. I think that's critical. I'm also really interested in, in the rights of the not human, not human, uh, the other than human world as well. Uh, I think it's critical to our future. So uh, things like UBI. So this is the, these are the themes that I'm trying to write music and songs around. And I'm gonna actually give you some illustrations of these in a moment. So we're gonna uh, hopefully make more sense. I'm trying to actually write a song about UBI at the moment. Uh, it's quite hard <laughs> to come up with the right framing, but I'm working on it. I'll get there. Maybe Edelman's got some great ideas, wants to collaborate, let me know. Uh, but again, it's about seeding these ideas in a musical form and where we go out and do our concerts. We want these ideas to stick in people's heads as an earworm. Security is sufficiency, obviously. Um, and in that, I think the energy revolution uh, is such a really good news story. We need to be singing it from the rooftops. Uh, and in agriculture, that's safe from anthropogenic disaster, something else we're quite interested in. Uh, restoration of the natural world, obviously. Rewilding furiously. Um, all those benefits that come from that. I'm not going to, again, I've got a bunch of notes here, but I'm going to ignore those. Uh, and also a theme I've been thinking about is climate safety and getting this uh, through our music. Uh, and I hope other artists will take up these things around, uh, particularly things like protection from heat going into the future. We have a serious problem with uh, future or heat now, but also going into the future about how we create safety in our communities from uh, really dangerous heat waves. It is protection from heat now is a human right. And we need to be seeding those ideas so we can uh, learn to adapt. So I've sort of distilled all these down into, oops, easy. Oh, I'm going to go, here we go. Um, into three critical narratives and it helps me frame the way I think. One is resilience, this whole idea of building society's ability to cooperate and act collectively for those common goals. And we've seen this through the, uh, to some extent through the um, COVID-19 experience and still seeing it today, particularly in South Australia. Our relinquishment, knowing that we will lose a lot of that which we love. And a lot of our songs are around, music is around, giving people emotional space to process this reality that we are losing things that we care about. And of course, you've got to think about what a good future could look like. So I love the idea of combining science, this, the future of technology and science, the science fictions, if you like, uh, with the natural systems of the world. So regeneration. Okay. Um, I've got three songs. And I'm going to share them with you. Now, these have been recently recorded. They're not finalized yet, but they're pretty good enough to go for now. Uh, the first song is uh, a song about renewable energy. And it's about, imagine if you will, uh, you're in an, uh, a dusty old down in its luck outback town somewhere in Australia. And you're worried about the future. And then in the distance comes this tall dark, dark stranger well he's not actually tall in the dark but anyway uh riding an old horse who's been out looking for some answers and uh, that's the sort of johnny cash type of motif that I, we've tried to uh affect so we're going to play this first song and i'll see how we go so let's hope it works the stranger he was tall and strong never doing wrong when he came to town so the people gathered all around 
He rose slowly on his horse, a palomino called a Colin Morrison. Of the future, he wrote a book. But they were assured us who he was. They were all at a loss to someone recognized him. It's Ross. Hey, Ross. Good eye, Ross. Hey, look, Ross. Garnell, it is. Economist. Clean energy. My name is Ross, you're surely right. I traveled this land day and night. I searched for the hidden past to take. In this land so bleached and scorched for a vision of the pathway forward. Tell us, did you find it, Ross? They called. Ross sat still upon the hill. He cleared his throat. The crowd went still. We can be super powerful. Come on, Ozzy, we can be, come be a superpower with me, an energy superpower with me. And he sang as he watched everyone join him to sing. We can be a superpower Australia, an energy superpower Australia. Okay. <laughs> so. That's uh, a song that we're using to uh, obviously tell the story of Ross Garnell's latest book. I haven't sent it to Ross yet, but I, I will do that sometime uh, about uh, renewable energy, because I think it's a story we need to really, a lot of people are not aware of it, and there are all the jobs that are available. Second one is the revolution in, in, in agriculture, and the revolution in what in future diets is a huge discursive change going to happen. I think you know a lot of us are seeing that going to take place. So we decided to write a song that might help uh, that uh, earworm that might help people with that one. So I'm going to give you play a little clip of that one as well. So here we go. Let everyone eat more vegetables. We need to eat fewer animals. All of us will live to a ripe old age Because of vegetables The earth will take you on tour And all the streams will be so pure And you can drink the water now it's clean There's a few cows in the field And there's some chickens roaming free In the countryside stars to look green Let everyone eat more vegetables We need to eat fewer animals All of us will live to a ripe old age Because of vegetables It's really simple to... Okay, uh, so sorry to cut off so abruptly there, but this again is a little earworm we've tried to, when we talk about uh, the agricultural revolution. I also I realize the time's nearly up, but I want to just play maybe a three minutes of this last song. This is a very different type of song, just so you know that I'm not a country musician. They are uh, off character for me. Uh, and this is about called Every Story Will Change. And, and it's, a, it's a song to reflect, I guess, uh, reflections on uh, the fact that uh, the stories that we know and love will will change. So I'm just going to play a little bit of it and you'll, uh, you'll get the idea of it.
were hominoids ranging the savannah, started telling stories to one another, became the planet storytellers chasing our dreams, the language and our genes and collective memes, yeah. Some think all we need is scientific facts to explain our world and Stories arbitrate with facts are concerned. Stories are the supervisors of our worlds. Every story will change. I'm getting worried about the future of the planet, not the chemistry. But the life that is on it We're up against the limit Seems it's only minutes To make the changes needed To these stories we've invented Yeah Every culture has stories About the who, the why, the what The problem that we've got A lot of these would not slow down Our extinction, our execution Seduced by stories that offer No redemption Okay, I'm not going to look. I'm not going to talk any more about what I just did there. But it's just uh, an example of how I've been trying to translate those large stories into musical form for the sort of work that we've been doing in our in our show and in our music. And uh, I think it's got a lot of possibilities of um, thinking through the connections. I would really encourage artists, particularly musicians, to think more strategically around uh, what we're trying to say and actually trying to speak to these emerging issues. So I'll stop now and we can have a chat. And the album's coming out in the next few months, so uh, find our website. So I'm really grateful to the three of you for such a fantastic overview. And in fact, the order of discussion with you coming in, Simon, showing some very real examples of how you're grappling with narrative ideas and then turning that into uh, practice is very, very inspiring. Um, I would, while we, could I invite everyone in the group to think about some questions? Um, but in the meantime, I wonder if Chris, Louise, or Simon, if you have any questions for each other. Um, otherwise, um, I can start off because I've got many burning questions, but I can certainly ask one to all of you, which I might start with. Um, so Simon's just put his musicforawarmingworld.org website in there. And remember, Nina is all about plugging your own work showing off all the good things you, your organisation are doing, and then joining up with others. So um, that's why Nina's so much fun. You don't have to pretend that you don't do the things you do. You tell everyone what you're doing and then they'll tell you what they're doing. And that's the whole point of it. So, But look, my question to the three of you, um, just for an initial kickoff, is in terms of the work that the New Economy Network is doing, uh, as Chris well knows, I'm quite passionate about playing a part in really trying to shift the conversations um, into all the good directions that we're finding. But I'm continually troubled by the control of the press, by the Murdoch press for mass media, the decline in local and regional newspapers, which for whether you want to um, argue, some of them were controlled anyway. But my question to you guys is, 
what do you think are some of the best ways that a group like Nina or anyone else can reach out with communication uh, pathways, strategies to enlarge its networks and to enlarge the messaging to people that might not spend their every waking moment thinking about saving the world? What do you think? Chris? Um, that's a tough question. Um, the Coalition of Everyone did a really interesting project this year, which I had a little bit of involvement with called um, the Future Now Project, collecting people's visions of what they would like the future of Australia to look like and putting those up on a web platform. And while I think, and this goes a little bit to the, uh, Karen asked me a question in the chat as well. Um, so this goes a little bit to that as well. I think so far those, you know, what I've looked at in my work is people that are already passionate about creating this transformation and the kind of narratives that they're talking about. And so far, most of the people that have posted visions on the Future Now Project's website are also those kind of people. They're, they're the already converted. And so, but the, the ambition of that project is to reach out much more broadly and hear the visions of people from all walks of life in Australia. And so I think um, rather than trying to think of it as what's the message that we want to communicate, it's more of a listening approach where I think the, the suspicion that we had in that project was that if you ask people what they want for the future, there'll be a lot of common ground across both sides of politics, across different demographics. Um, and we thought, you know, you could go and ask, you could ask people in a surf lifesaving club, here's a little visioning project you could do in your club, um, a little process you could do and post the vision that you come up with and start to collect those visions and then draw out some of the common ground that we see emerging across. So I guess my, those are pretty unformed thoughts, but I think uh, an approach that draws out what people are looking for the future first, rather than saying, hey, the future should look like this, get on board, may be a better way to reach out to um, expand the networks of people getting involved in this conversation. Sure, and I, I should have stressed that it wasn't about, I guess it was more about inviting people into the network or inviting people into these bigger discussions and events, um, the framing of some of that for folks who aren't already engaged. I, I mean, I, the listening, obviously it's very, I agree, it's very important, but thank you for that answer. Um, Louise or Simon, did you have any thoughts about that? How we reach the, um, reach folks who maybe aren't already in our own networks around? Look, I, I don't have a global answer, but I, some of the work that um, uh, we're doing at the moment around the public good, I think, speaks to a small pocket of it. Um, and what um, we've been doing there is going out and talking to as diverse a groups as, you know, a women's health organisation or a mother's club or um, a group of workers in a distribution centre and trying to have a conversation and very much with the listening frame um, that Chris talked about of what does public good look like for them and part of 
So we're not doing it through mediated um, channels. So we're not relying on, you know, the Murdoch press or whatever to try and tell people a story, but to try and use natural networks and community-based networks to try and uh, um, unveil a story. And then in the process of unveiling, it's actually about building new capacity. So the process itself is as important as the end product. And so it's building those networks that then start to create their own agendas and hopefully start to create their own organisation and activity locally, which then somehow we um, need to then join up. So I don't think that's um, isolated to Australia made. Um, it's you know it's a whole range of other organisations doing similar work. But I think there's some core elements about um, you know it's about trying to ha have people. You know the big word that's come out of today is participation. People need to be part of the process. And one of the public goods may well be that we identify that we need non-marketised local media sources, <laughs> and that that's something that you know the public purse should support down the track so you know ultimately you can change the dynamics that make it difficult in the first place mm, yeah thank you and certainly anyone who knows the way we've designed nina by having our distributed governance by having these now dozens of hubs around australia that's really about participating and making the future not just receiving a passive message and thinking about it so thank you um were there any other questions that the panel or our speakers had for each other I've got a question here I can jump to otherwise. I just want to know if Simon can do Australia Remade the Musical for us, which was one of the suggestions from a narrative hub workshop uh, a couple of months ago. Sure. <laughs> Why don't we integrate it into the New Economy Cabaret? Because I'm planning for the Newcastle one to get like a karaoke version of how people could jump up and I have four songs that I rewrote. They're not originals. I rewrote um, about the new economy. So let's do that and Australia Remade and all the other good ones at the next Nina gathering or an online sing along. Wouldn't that be hilarious? <laughs> Simon uh, is coming onto the board of directors at Nina so we can have a special working group on the musical. <laughs> nice. Okay, so we've got a question here, um, Steve, Stephen Liaros. Uh, how do we reconcile the contradiction between asking people what future they want and the Indigenous perspective of listening to the land and developing human stories in relationship with the understanding of the land? How do we develop systems where human stories emerge from the land rather than from individual desires? Green Prince program run by Ayla. One response to that I, um, is how, how you go about asking people to think about their future and, and how you draw out in that process connections to place that they feel. And so I, I have a kind of visualisation script that I run people through when I'm trying to bring them into the space of thinking about the future because it's not... It's not an easy space to get into. We're all very stuck in what's going on in the present and the trends that seem hard to break away from. Uh, and some of the things that that visualisation script does, I mean, it's literally like a meditative process. You sort of close your eyes and you go through imagining yourself in this future world. But a lot of it is about um, trying to encourage people to connect to place through that process and to, to really 
try and feel the place that they're imagining themselves in and um, engage all of their senses. So what are they hearing and smelling and, and um, seeing? And um, so maybe that's one way to kind of bridge that contradiction is, is starting with what is it that you love about a particular place and then imagining yourself in that place in the future? Um, so, you know, great question and um, we'd love to explore other ways to bridge that. Thank you. Um, Bromwyn Morgan is one of the Nina directors, but also since she's got some ideas, did you want to respond to that as well? Well, uh, yes, I, I'd love to because I was, uh, um, I wanted to speak about this as soon as Simon had spoken. It's basically, um, I've had this, this, um, vague idea before responding to something called singing. Uh, has anyone come across, um, where is it? Sorry, I've, just, I've got so many thoughts banging off in my head. Singing from country. Okay, so it's a Community Music Victoria project and I don't know if any of the Melbourneites have come across it, but they, had, they only had funding for a year, but they went to different places and they um, met with the elders before they went and they planned the way and they, basically then held an event, a community event, where they introduced people to the history of the place led by the elders and had conversations and did certain things during that day. And then the songwriters wrote a song within a day and the end of the, the day was a performance of that song on the stage. And one of my friends helped run it. And um, he is a songwriter. He said it was very challenging for a songwriter to do it that fast, but also incredibly Sort of energizing and rewarding and i remember having a conversation with michelle about that a few years ago and saying we should blend that with green prints which is what she's yep. talking about in the chat and yeah. now i'm thinking with the musical idea that you could run a series of those each of them would um, sort of aimed at producing one of the songs for the musical mm -hmm. um, and 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 work with australia remade and i don't know i just i just think it's, it, it connects this this idea of the connection to the country and another way into the um, indigenous knowledge and the music. No, I think it's wonderful, Bromwell. Yeah. Are you able to share a, a web link in the chat too? So I've been I've been looking while we've been listening, and it, I'll keep looking. But it looks like they got funded. They used to have a Facebook group which I was on, and it's gone. They used to have a web page, and it's gone. And it was a few years ago, and it only had a year's funding. So I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll I can contact my friends and try to see what. Yeah, uh, please do. Thank you for sharing, Bronwyn. And I, I, I ramble about Green Prince because it's a really nice community-based local up way of bringing Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples in a bioregion together to do a full process over a year or two of um, like a bioregional knowledge festival, which we're hosting at the Sunshine Coast next year, which brings our earth arts and other arts collectives together. And we'll be doing uh, the writing of poetry and such with scientists, with Indigenous elders, family friendly event, but it links to this in-depth analysis of the whole impact over time, um, different scenarios for the bioregion, and then the long-term economic transition builds out of that. Um, and in all honesty, it's one of the reasons I've spent four and a half years volunteering my time to build Nina, is so that we had a new economy framework inside a bioregional earth-centered framework for community-based, community-led change. And then right at the end of it, um, we've got the legal aspects and the governance aspects. And so storytelling in amongst all that is incredibly important and it already is people have been through the processes we've led people are saying i had no idea that on the back ridge of my 
place. They were giants. We, the trees were bigger than my house. Nobody knows this. And so they're starting to tell the stories of what used to be there to awaken knowledge of what the bioregion's really about. So I just mentioned it because it's actually pivotal to the long-term strategies of Ayla and Nina is this bioregional stuff. So, um, but that was very indulgent of me to share. I shouldn't do that. I should be zipped up when I'm a facilitator. Um, are we, do we have questions specifically for our wonderful speakers tapping into their amazing expertise, please? Um, uh, oh yeah, well, Bromon, if you've got a question for our speakers, you're on mute, mate, you're on mute. Sorry, just um, particularly how, because I think this goes, it could be for anyone, it starts with Simon, but it goes to the point of how do you connect to the wider community that's not already thinking about this. And, and you know, I guess with Simon, when you're writing about earnest-ish subjects, and it sort of made me laugh when you said it was, you were having a tough time with UBI, and I couldn't hear the songs. My, for some reason, the music didn't play through my device. So I don't, how do you deal with earnest political um, sort of material through music that you're trying to make as popular as possible? Oh, I don't think there's any straightforward answer to that. Uh, there's, I think one of the things that I do is I, I test the emotional resonance of what I'm singing about. I test it on others. I belong to a number of songwriting groups uh, to see what the response is. Often it's like falls flat, I'll drop it. Um, but it is a challenge. And, and some of my songs have, uh, have been, particularly in the show, have been tended to be fairly, in, in a sense, uh, didactic in the sense they're telling about science or telling particular stories. But ultimately, you've got to tap into emotions. And I think this is the, the thing we can have stories, but we've got to give them an emotional context. Um, where people can then process and sit with that story. And that's one of the things, one of the reasons I do music is that it allows an opportunity or so, I guess the way we have done it with, with a hour long show, it gives people a chance to sit with the stories that might be difficult. Um, and, and look, if you're being a bit, you, you can't preach, uh, you know, we can say, well, we should eat more, more vegetables, try to do it in a fun way um, because I think that's what the evidence is showing us. The, the, the scientists get up and say, hey, here's the, here's the weight of evidence about agricultural reform that needs to take place and about dietary issues and about animal wealth, welfare and about industrial animal production and about, human, uh, about workers' rights in these big industrial systems. Uh, there's overwhelming amount of evidence. So we try to give it a bit of a light touch, but something that people can take away as an earworm without necessarily having to dig into all the all the stuff behind it. Uh, so it's tricky and I think we have to work hard as songwriters not to slip into that thing of, of being, I don't know, uh, embarrassingly earnest. Got to break it up a bit. So I don't know what the trick is, but you sort of know it. When you've got it right, you know it. But like doing art, when you, when you get that moment, you've got it. There's no algorithm that shows you what to do. So that's the best I can say. Following on from that, Simon, and this is a question, not me rambling about myself. Um, have you ever drawn on the inspiration of the remarkable body of work from unions and folk songs, particularly that emerged in the um, 19th century and the early 20th, uh, as people were you know, speaking up for their work, rights as workers, their rights for a future? I, I was thinking when you were talking about 
UBI, you know, some yeah. of the core yeah. aspects have actually all been done. Yeah, no, that's a, it's a very good point. And I go to a lot of, we've played a lot of folk festivals. Uh, and I've been to many folk festivals over the years, but particularly the folky type of festivals. Um, I get frustrated, to be honest, because a lot of it, the stuff is about nostalgia. A lot of the interest in the old songs about mining and the, even the old union days is all about stuff that's mm. gone in the past. I go, where are the stories for the future? Who's thinking about what this means for workers in the future or for the environment in the future is a lot of stuff around the old days. And mm. part of my goal is to actually raise consciousness about forward thinking, which is tricky, but that's, that's what I've committed to doing. Mm. And a lot of the passion from union songs does generate from the nostalgia, the sadness, the grief of changed circumstance. So tapping into emotion and even the grief about yeah. climate change Surely um, that will touch a nerve, you know, lamenting for things, but also looking to a future. So yeah. thank you so much, Simon. And um, perhaps to wind us into... Could I just maybe just yeah, very please, quickly... Please. Sorry, just two quick comments, um, particularly to um, Bronwyn's question. Um, we had an experience recently where we've just um, made and released a, a, a very short video about a sort of a visioning exercise. And Millie's put the link in the chat. And it was a real struggle between those of us that wanted to have a million words and ideas and graphs and, <laughs> and those that wanted an emotional experience that was essentially visual, oral um, and emotive. And I've got to say, um, what we ended up with was fortunately, I didn't win, others did and we got a much better product. Um, but what's fascinating is that people who are experienced campaigners are a bit, oh, yeah, no, it's not bad. Whereas a whole lot of other people have really felt um, and been moved by it. And so, you know, we do need to find different avenues for different groups, but um, the power of um, the emotive shouldn't be underestimated, but, um, particularly those of us who want to just go to the sort of the um, more cerebral or didactic. So, and I, can I just say, when I was um, with the union, we had a song called Standing Together. It was um, written by a WA songwriter. Um, we had it modern, um, modernised to our union and we sang it at the beginning of every big collective union meeting. And it, um, and it was all about solidarity, essentially. But the act of standing and, and singing together actually um, very well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I... I couldn't vehemently confirm that any more vehemently because I think a lot of the, a lot of the kind of more reserved nature of a lot of our Anglo-Saxon heritage means some folks are uncomfortable singing in a non, in a predominantly white fellow group. But then I remind them about the Welsh and the Celts and the way that everyone sings all the time in other places. So tapping into that's really great. Um, I was just thinking so much, Louise. I was thinking to, to lead us out because we'll close in a moment. I wonder if um, Chris, Simon, and Louise, you could just briefly mention um, one or two things that you'll be doing next year that will be progressing some of these issues we're talking about, um, even if it's one really cool event or a meeting or, or a campaign. It'd be nice to look to the future as we close. Chris, would you like to go first? Sure. Well, there's, uh, there's going to be a Nina Narratives Hub update on Sunday. So in the, I don't want to steal the thunder of that too much, but uh, you know, there will be Nina Narrative Hub events. Um, there's another meeting coming up still this year in 10 days' time, if anyone wants to come along. And then um, you know, we'll be talking there about what we want to focus on next year. And I've got a few ideas. Michelle sent some, through some ideas. So uh, really... I guess it's thinking about how we can 
bring some of these narrative and storytelling ideas to Nina's communications and how we can um, help through, through the Nina network start to have some of these, um, these messages starting to move out through the network. So um, that's one thing. Um, I, I had a go at writing a short story um, about which got published about um, a more positive view of the future, trying to sort of combat the dystopian imagery that we are so commonly bombarded with. And so that was published in a collection called Our Entangled Future, which was about trying to tell more um, positive stories about how the future might play out. And I'm keen to play around with that with fiction a little bit more and, and trying to balance, walk that line between not being didactic and just letting the world the world building emerge through the, the telling of the story. And so had one go at that, I'm keen to give it a bit more of a go next year as well. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chris. And Louise, did you want to mention something that you're looking oh, for? Just very briefly, and Millie yeah. will be talking on it more later, but um, we'll be um, rolling out the sort of next phase expansion of the public good conversations across the country and all around the notion of trying to extend and create new public squares. So we're pretty excited about that at a sort of a much bigger scale. Thank you. That's terrific. And Simon? Um, well, I'm really looking forward to the narratives one working with Chris and because I think it's a really important initiative. Um, we've actually got a, for our first online show, kindly sponsored by the Willoughby City Council in Sydney, uh, coming out this Thursday, uh, live streaming with a Q&A at the end of it, uh, 7 o'clock. So uh, you can access it either through Willoughby City Council or just our website, Music for a Warming World, and just look for the gig tab and you'll find a, a link to the booking. You've got a book, but it's free because it's sponsored. Uh, by the good people of Sydney, or Willoughby at least. <laughs> um, and that, that's part of it. Uh, that album is going to be part of a project of, of a series of music videos around gear telling stories and a series of written pieces. So some essays that I've already written and some other pieces that I'm still writing around trying to give both the sort of textual plus the visual plus the sort of you know emotional dimension to the, some of these stories. Um, and always looking for collaborators for projects around these themes. So we'd love to hear from anyone who's interested in the role of uh, music. Thanks. Mm. Great. Wonderful. Thank you so much, everyone, for your time. Thank you to our participants. Uh, just a reminder, we're going to turn the conference off. How funny. For an hour. And um, we can have a lunch break now. And so it's 12 noon here in Queensland. It's 1 p.m. AEDT. Um, we will be getting back together in an hour. Um, thanks to everyone for patience, your patience with our internet, um, with our little website, having a giant um, sleepy moment when everyone tried to use it. I have just sent an email to all conference participants giving you an alternative uh, page to log into to get all of the conference details for the whole conference. But I also earlier today sent another email to all of you um, with the actual Zoom links for every single session today. So please do have a look at your emails. If for whatever reason you feel lost, confused, join the club. No, I mean, send us an email and I'll be able to respond to you um, with the relevant bits. But thank you again to all our speakers. Fabulous air clapping, little clappings on your buttons. I do like the reactions. Clappity clap and party party. Yay. Thanks so much, everybody. And we'll see you in another session soon. Have a great uh, break. See you soon. Thank you.
You have been listening to an episode of A Line in the Sound, the podcast made by Co-ops, Commons and Communities Canberra, Co-Canberra for short, the New Economy Network of Australia, or NINA, and Radio Behind the Lines from Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Co-Canberra is working towards a cooperative Commonwealth. Our work builds strong communities, extensive commons, and a network of climate cooperatives. The New Economy Network of Australia is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. Behind the Lines has been running for well over 30 years on Canberra's oldest community radio station, 2XX. We do extended interviews with anyone who's trying to make the world a better place. All three are volunteer-run, so if you like what you heard on this episode, join us and become the media. To join up with the New Economy Network of Australia, sign up at neweconomy.org.au. To help out with Behind the Lines, or to help our editing team finish off a mountain of good Australian New Economy info, which includes editing training, contact us at behindthelines98.3 at gmail.com and see 2XXFM.org.au where you can subscribe, donate and volunteer to Australia's only alternative voice, Community Radio. If you're not in Canberra, there's definitely one near you. To help out with CoCanberra, contact us at info at cocanberra.org.au That's C-O-C-A-N-B-E-R-R-A.org.au or come along to our monthly meetups, which we share with Nina Canberra Regional Hub, where we explore any and all aspects of the new economy. Find out what we're up to at cocanberra.org.au. And finally, if you want to help fund me, Scotty, to go full-time with this and lots of other related work, look up LiberaPay, L-I-B-E-R-A-P-A-Y, and search for Community Supported Scotty. From there, you can find out about all my other projects and donate to help create a new appropriate economy. Thanks.